The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, 13, and Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Hunter. Well, good morning, everybody, and by everybody, uh, I guess we, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, mean those who are in here, those who are out on the breezeway, and those who are in other places live streaming. It's a very strange time that we're in right now, but uh, grateful that the worship of God never stops and grateful that we can be present uh, not only here but also in home. So if you're joining us virtually, we welcome you uh, as well. And uh, my name is Scott, if we hadn't had a chance to meet yet, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm usually the one who has the privilege of, of uh, coming up here and Uh, making an attempt at explaining the scripture after it's read. And we have been in a series uh, on the law of Moses. It's a series in the Ten Commandments uh, from the 20th chapter of Exodus. And usually we're adding another passage uh, that, that helps to interpret that command. And this one from Matthew 5 is actually from the Sermon on the Mount, which many agree is Jesus's interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And it's, it's hard to get a better commentary than the commentary of the Son of God himself. And so uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an old uh, you know, document uh, that uh, unpacks uh, theological truth in, in uh, what many to be, be, believe to be a very beautiful way, uh, says this about the Sixth Commandment. It means more than just the physical act of taking a life. It means this. I'm not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds. Now, the American Psychological Association um, believes that we have things stacked against us, especially in the American West, in terms of, of really taking the Sixth Commandment into our hearts and living it out. Uh, The American Psychological Association coined the phrase culture of death to describe the culture that we find ourselves in. And one of the examples of that that they gave is they said that by the time that the average child finishes elementary school, he or she would have witnessed 80,000, I'm sorry, 8,000 murders and 100,000 acts of violence on a screen alone. 
And as the scriptures say, whatever passes through our eyes passes into us and often makes it into our hearts and has this shaping, formative effect. And our constant intake of violence, not, not only in film, uh, but, but also on you know, the news and in many other ways, conditions us to, at the very least, be numb to violence, but also to become perpetuators of it without even realizing that we're doing it. So W.C. Fields, the comedian, said this, I am free of all prejudices. I hate everybody equally. Now, that's pretty funny if, if you really think about it. Nobody laughed. You guys, come on, are you with me? That was pretty funny. I'm less secure because, or I'm, I'm less insecure because that was somebody else's joke and not my own. I will repeat, I am free of all prejudices. I hate everyone equally. So the gospel represents a 180-degree turn from uh, this prejudicial posture that he's making light of. What the gospel communicates and encourages and insists upon is that the people of Jesus contribute to a culture of life in the midst of a culture of death and while living in a culture of death. We are to become free of prejudice, not by hating everyone equally, but, but by loving uh, our neighbors equally. So, so theologians, Bible scholars, they talk about the Ten Commandments in two sections, two tables of the law, they say. And the first table is the part that has to do with loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first four commandments. And then the second six commandments have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus says all the law is contained and bound up in these two things, love God and love your neighbor. And so somebody asked uh, Jesus to explain the second part. Who is my neighbor? The man asked Jesus. And Jesus responded to that question with a parable, uh, and he put two people that you wouldn't expect him to put in the parable, a Jewish man and a Samaritan man. Of course, there's a priest and a Levi, a couple of uh, clergy uh, that, that are secondary actors, but the primary actors are, are a Jewish man who's been beaten up uh, and, and is a victim of, of an act of violence, and he's dying on the side of the road, and in comes a Samaritan who rescues him, who takes care of him, who loves him back to life at great cost to himself. Now, What's, what's unusual about this parable is that Jews and Samaritans were historically hostile to each other. Spiritually, they were on different pages. Culturally, they were on way different pages. Ethnically, they were different. Politically, they were, they were enemies in, in all of these ways. And yet Jesus makes the clear statement in this parable that he receives them both. And because he receives them both, and because he has given them both a grace that neither of them deserves, then, then, then it is upon us as human beings to do the hard work of reconciliation and working toward peace with each other as well. And so in conflict, the Christian how is just as important as the Christian what. And we live in a time of conflict. I was just on the phone the other day with an educator I said, how you doing? You're heading into a new, new school year. And he says, you know, basically all of us educators are, are experiencing a collective 
panic attack and a collective sigh of defeat because we know that whatever decisions we make with this whole Delta variant thing happening, we know that whatever decisions we make, about half of our constituents are going to hate our guts and the other half are going to be mildly satisfied. And that's just the climate we're in. And so what does the Bible say to Christians in a climate like that where everybody's just ready to jump on somebody else? and to pounce on somebody else, and to scold and shame somebody else. What's the Christian contribution to that culture? The Christian contribution to a culture of outrage is to be counterculture. Colossians chapter 3 puts it this way, and, and, and again, this is to Jews and Samaritans, Jews and Gentiles Paul is writing to. They're in community together, and they're, they're both living in a hostile climate called early Rome. And he says this. This is what it means to be counterculture. This is your contribution to a culture that's hostile. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So, three things. Let down your sword, let down your defenses, and take up the gospel. Those are the three thoughts for today. So first, let down your sword. This was something that Jesus said to Peter when somebody was attacking Jesus in the garden. And Peter took up his sword, and and, and Jesus says, Peter, put down your sword. This is not how we fight. We are not retaliatory people. Let down your sword. So here, Jesus uses words like anger, insults, accusation, and unreconciled relationship to describe this dynamic that you might call a homicidal heart. And you never have to go all the way in in, in terms of committing the kind of homicide that will actually get you thrown behind bars to actually be culpable of homicide from Jesus' perspective. Jesus' clear teaching, Jesus' clear interpretation of the sixth commandment is this. If my heart is closed to the idea of doing my part to pursue harmony with my neighbor, to to pursue social harmony with my neighbor, then I am not ready for spiritual worship. If my heart is closed off to pursuing social harmony, harmony, then, then, then I am not ready for spiritual worship. It's pretentious. It's a farce. It's not real to present my heart to God while closing my heart off to the possibility even of reconciliation and peace with you know, whoever my Samaritan is or whoever my other might be. It says here, first be reconciled. If you're bringing a gift to the altar, if you're coming to God, you know, to give him your heart, but there's something between you and somebody else, do your part to pursue reconciliation and peace. Now, maybe, maybe the outcome won't be reconciliation and peace, but as the book of Hebrews says, As far as it depends on you, you do the work to be at peace with everyone. 
You can't control somebody else's response to your peacemaking, but Jesus is saying, my people are peacemakers. Now this, this laying down our swords, when we're talking about the culture of our hearts, it gets a little bit more complicated. It means a few things, especially about the dynamic of anger and especially pet peeves. And, and, and what I think the Bible teaches us is to catch it early in the same way that we would want to catch, catch weeds early uh, in, in, a, in a large you know, patch of grass or, or yard or landscape or golf course. We want to catch the weeds. We want to get the early weeds so it doesn't spread into more weeds. Or if we find out that there are cancer cells in our body, we want to catch and, and, and destroy those cancer cells before they grow and take over the whole system. Or if we have a virus, we, we, want, to, we want to catch it. We want to treat it. We want to diminish it. We want to pour antibodies all over it uh, in order to prevent it from taking over the whole body. You get the point. Or if we have termites... There's a termite trail that, that, that points to something. You call the exterminator immediately if you see a, a termite tunnel. Catch it early. Anger is a lot like a weed. It's a lot like a termite tunnel. It's a lot like a spark. You know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Has potential to take over everything. Your entire soul. So, so let's talk about pet peeves. I have a condition. It's actually a medical condition called misophonia. It means hatred of noise. And people with misophonia, they have different hatreds. And my specific noise hatred is when somebody is smacking their food, chewing loudly, crunching loudly. It, there's this thing that happens, this visceral thing that happens inside of me. And it becomes an occasion uh, to, to exercise and cultivate the fruit of self-control for me. Another one is traffic. You guys have been here. If you're from Nashville, all these people driving five miles an hour slower than the speed limit. And they get in front of me, and I look in the rear view to justify myself. And I say, see, there are 12 cars behind me. You know, somebody's trailing me. And, this per and, and, and I get this sort of you know, character assassination kind of thought or temptation that goes on in my heart just if somebody's driving slow, right? These are what you call pet peeves. But as Bo Bennett says, pet peeves do not make good pets. Because pet peeves, like a little puppy, you know, a little tiny puppy, um, you know, pit bull can grow into a really big murderous one, right? Pet peeves don't make good pets. Jesus, but, but on the flip, flip side, Jesus said this, if you're faithful in the small things, it will set you up to become a faithful person. If you're faithful in small moments, it will, it will condition you to become a faithful person when you're triggered by bigger things than traffic and the sound of people chewing their food or, or whatever the pet peeve might be. A thousand little mini decisions to resist you know, outrage that, 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 that could, could be stirred in a heart from, from a relatively small thing can, can help to prepare and disciple the culture of the heart for bigger, real offenses. If a pet peeve seems small, just, just know that a pet peeve is never insignificant. If you want to rid your heart of homicidal tendencies, you've got to attack the irritants early in the same way that you would a cancer cell or a termite tunnel. So what's the early warning sign 
of a heart that is moving in the direction of a bad place? Words. Words. As Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The culture of a person's heart comes through in the words of a person's tongue. You can either be the kind of person who critiques fiercely and encourages softly. Or you can be the kind of person who critiques softly and encourages fiercely. It's the latter, not the former, that Jesus wants his people to be. So an early sign is our words. Out of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus says, and then here in the 22nd verse, whoever insults his brother and says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, there, there are two words that Jesus uses here. The first is the Greek word moros. We get our word moron from that. And then the second is the word raka, which means a person who is, in my eyes, empty of value. They are a valueless person, a nobody, persona non grata, dismissible, useless, contemptible, an object of contempt. You know, Lady Astor and Winston Churchill famously did not like each other. And uh, the story is told of how Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. To which he responded, if I was your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> now that's a funny anecdote. Thank you for laughing at that one. Until it's us, and then it's not so funny. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, words can cut me to the core. You know, Dallas Willard said that contempt, especially when it's expressed through words, contempt is a knife in the heart that permanently harms and mutilates a soul. Parental contempt expressed through words has put millions of adults in a lifetime of therapy. That's how powerful words can be. Another quote from this person they call anonymous. Words of contempt put a dagger in a part of a person's heart that no surgeon can reach. Words. Encouraging words have power to lift somebody up, to elevate somebody's heart, to, 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 to pass on hope to somebody else. Contempt words, contempt-filled words have the power to crush. Let down your sword. Secondly, let down your defenses. Now this is, you know, the first is... is you know, the, 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 the encouragement, the first point, you know, laying, letting down your sword is the, the encouragement not to injure or to retaliate. And, and the second is, is not unlike it. Let down your defenses. You know, this too has, um, you know, the, the flavor of resisting the urge to retaliate. So I've told a story before of, of an atheist friend of mine. And, and I was in a conversation with him. We'd had many conversations about God 
the existence of the universe, the meaning of things. And um, he was getting really heated up about the subject of God. And he often got heated up about the subject of God and of Jesus especially. And so I just asked him, I said, why are you so mad at a God that you don't think exists? I mean, I don't know anybody who gets angry at fictional characters from movies or from stories. Why is it you think that you're so angry at a God that you don't think exists? And he says, all right. I appreciated his honesty. He says, you've called my bluff. Here's the truth. There's no way you can't believe in the existence of God when you look around at, you know, the sky, the stars, the planets, all of that. Of course I believe in the existence of God. But here's the thing. If I become a Christian, I know that that will be the beginning of a process where I will have to learn to forgive my father for the things that he did to me. And I would rather rot in hell than forgive my father. He's a hurting man. That's where his anger came from. There was a lot of pain beneath his expressions of outrage. And that is something that we have to contend with if we're considering whether or not to go in with Jesus. Are we ready to engage the very real call from Christ to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us? Now, Hopefully this will soften the blow. When it says in Ephesians 4 and also in Colossians 3, forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you, it is not saying you have to get yourself to a place where you feel warmth and affection for somebody who's hurt you. It also does not mean that you have to get yourself to a place where you trust a person who has injured you. It doesn't say those things at all. You are never required to feel warmth and affection toward or to trust somebody who has hurt you, especially if there is no remorse, no apology, no interest in taking ownership for what the person has done. Forgiveness means no more and no less than being willing to absorb what has happened by not retaliating. Being willing to absorb what has happened by not retaliating. Now, in some instances, it's, it's the state's job to, to, to meet out consequences. And certain things should be re- reported to the authorities, for instance. That doesn't negate the call to forgive if you re- report somebody criminally to the authorities for, for doing something injurious and hurtful. But when it doesn't rise to that level, then what? This is what it says about Jesus in one of Peter's letters. When people unjustly struck Jesus, when they put him to death, he did not strike back. He did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. What that means is, either in this life 
or in the life to come, or both, God will make sure that every injustice will be reversed and, and made just, especially on behalf of the person who has been injured. Here's the other thing about forgiving. We're mistaken if we think that us forgiving someone else is mainly for that other person's benefit, especially if they're, they're not remorseful, if they're not taking ownership. It's not a favor to, to that person to say, I forgive you, when they're not really looking for your forgiveness. But even if they are looking for your forgiveness, the person that benefits still the most from forgiving is the person who does the forgiving. That's the person who benefits the most. Lewis Smedes, who's written a lot about the anatomy of forgiveness in the human heart, says that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. The irony is this, that the only way that somebody who has injured me can keep power over me is if I refuse to forgive. That if I cling to it, you know, like, like clinging to a, a hot, fiery coal, you know, you pull it off of the grill and it's still red hot and you just cling to it and you refuse to let go of it, the person it burns is you. And the second part of letting down our defenses has to do with humbling ourselves. In, in verse 23, Jesus pivots. And now he's, he's, he's not talking to offended parties. He's talking to the, the offending party. If your brother has something against you, then leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. So, so Christians are called to be the proactive ones, to, to be the takers of the first step, whether they are the offended party, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. If you don't win him over, which is the goal, to win the other person over, then bring two or three witnesses. If they're still unwinnable, bring them to the church. That's the process if you're the offended party. But if you're the offended, offending or presumed offending party, the teaching is this, Jesus says, verse 23, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. In other words, help other people not be scared to tell you that you hurt them. Help other people not be scared to tell you that you hurt them. Jack Miller was a master of this. He was a pastor and, and for a season of time, a, a seminary professor who taught and prepared young pastors. And, and when he got into his 60s, by the way, this took a long time. This just wasn't instant. This was about 40 to 50 years into being a follower of Christ. It, it dawned on him that the best response to a critique, whoever it came from, would be to first say thank you for that, and I thank you because you didn't confront me for all of it. You just took a sliver of, of, of what's in my heart and isolated the sliver instead of overwhelming me with all of it. And Jack Miller famously you know, said to his critics, you don't know the half of it. You know, Tim Keller, who is you know, one of my favorites, you know, just in terms of people to receive leadership from both in leadership and also just in what it means to be human and what it means to follow and love Christ and love people. 
So he wrote an essay called How to Take Criticism of Your Views. And Keller says the biggest danger of receiving criticism is not a danger to your reputation, but to your heart. You feel the injustice of it, and you feel sorry for yourself, and it tempts you to despise not only the critic, but the entire group of people from which they come. Those people you mutter under your breath, all this can make you proud over time. That's an understatement. And Keller goes on in that same essay to, to write uh, that uh, he is often, he's most often criticized, when he, and, and this happens with public people. It happens with pastors, it happens with, you know, public servants, it happens with educators for sure, uh, especially in a climate like the one we're in right now. It happens to, to people who make public decisions on behalf of other people or say things with conviction to groups of people, um, there's always this mix of legitimate feedback and um, feedback that Keller categorizes as unfair. He says, I'm, often, I'm most often criticized for views and motivations I actually don't have. And he says, but even when that happens... If my heart is in the right place, and he says he got this from John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. If my heart is in the right place, I will even try to search out a kernel of truth in an unfair criticism. Now, I'm not there yet, but this is the kind of person that I want to follow. This is the kind of person that I have respect for aspirationally. This is what I want to be and become is somebody who is so shaped by the love of Christ that I can even humbly receive unfair critique. And this all, I think, traces back to rethinking where moral authority actually comes from. Where moral authority comes from, first and foremost, is this. The way you get moral authority with the people around you is to admit that you lack it to admit and own, take ownership that you actually don't have moral authority. You know, parents who want their kids to respect them, your kids are much more likely to respect you, not if you present to them this picture of, you know, being a paragon of moral perfection. Your kids are going to respect you most, not when you are morally perfect in the way you present yourself, but morally self-aware, which is saying to your kids and in front of your kids and demonstrating to your kids and in front of your kids constantly, I want to be more, I know God has made me to be more than who I am right now, and I aspire and hope and dream and wish and pray to grow into that person more and more and more who's characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and I am sorry for the ways that I fall short of that, especially as your mom, especially as your dad, especially as an authority or a leader, as your boss, as a leader in your life, as your pastor, as a, as a leader in your life, I am sorry. Those are three very powerful words that will give you moral, more moral authority with the people around you than getting it all right. Because nobody gets it all right. 
You know, a couple years ago, I, I got irritated at the post office. Um, I, I said a snarky thing to the post office worker behind the desk because I was waiting forever in line, got, got my order wrong, charged me too much. It took, you know, 10 minutes to correct the charge. And, and, and I just, I said something snarky and I left and I'm, I'm about to get in my car and I stop. I'm like, mm-mm. Scott, you got to go back. You got to apologize to that guy. And you got to do it in front of all those people in line because that's the only way to do it. But you got to apologize to that guy. And so I went back and I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. I have no excuses. Um, that was a very poor way to treat you and, and shouldn't have said those things. You probably get those kinds of comments all the time. And I just don't want to be one of those people who speaks words that hurt you. And he said, sir, hold on a minute. I'm going to expedite your package. And so he, he gave me next day service at no extra charge. But here's the funny thing that happened after that. I walk out and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm so glad. I said, I'm sorry. And, and I'm getting in my car and, 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 and this, this other guy that was in line left his position in line. It comes out the door and says, hey, you, dude. And I'm like, yes. And and he said, yeah, way to go, man. Humility, saying you're sorry. That's a real man right there. And I said, wow, I never felt more like a real man than I feel right now. <laughs> Strong way to make a very simple point. You want to endear people to you? Say you're sorry. You want to exasperate people? Don't. It's pretty simple. I mean, we've all been in those conflicts, right, where the other person went first and said, oh, you know, here's, here's my contribution. I'm, I'm so sorry. I was kind of out of my mind when I spoke to you that way or when I got huffy and passive-aggressive on you. I'm sorry. What does that do to you? It melts you. It, it, there's like this immediate switch in your heart where, where you're, you're, you're upset with a person and all of a sudden you, you love them more than you can remember loving them. Or on those times where you go first and, and, and you see the countenance, you see the demeanor of the other person, just oh, this flood of relief, and then they start gushing their apologies back, and, and, and we're good again. There's power. There's power in that. But before we can get there, before we can become those kinds of people, we have to take up the gospel. All of the above is so much easier said than done, and all of the above requires a prerequisite renovation of the heart, where we recognize that it was Jesus first who let down his sword. If ever somebody in the history of the world had a right to retaliate, it was Jesus Christ, and he didn't. And I mean, he had insults, hurled at him. The very people that put him on the cross, the, the Roman centurions, the Roman soldiers, mocked him. And then the religious people who persuaded Rome, Roman authority, to put him on the cross and to crucify him, also mocking him. And two guilty men between whom he was crucified, also mocking him. All of them mocking him, saying things like, save yourself. If you're God's son, then come down from that cross. If they only knew what they were saying, that for him to come down from that cross, 
to save himself, it would have to be at their expense and they would be decimated. But instead, he saves them at his own expense and becomes decimated. And prays the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's moral authority as well. Jesus stands between the law of God and people who do not keep it because we cannot keep it. You know, Spurgeon famously said, the law of God is like a mirror. It can show you how dirty your face is, but it cannot wash your face. But Jesus can. Jesus can wash not only our face, not only our feet, but every square inch of us all the way down to that place in our hearts that no surgeon can reach. Jesus laid down his sword. He let down his defenses. He let himself be defaced. He let himself be defamed so that he could turn his face toward us. You know, he's the one who had truly and legitimately all moral authority, not because he apologized. He had nothing to apologize for, but because he was actually morally perfect. He had all moral authority. But instead of attacking us, instead of attacking those who are hostile toward him, he attacked the problem, the sin problem. So he wouldn't have to attack people who committed the sin. You know, this being true, we have in our possession and, and, and the table of Christ, the, the body and the blood, the, the bread and the cup point to this. We have everything we need in our possession to become the kinds of people who don't commit a suicide and homicide of other people's reputations or homicide of other people's emotional life with our words, with our postures, with our treatment. We have the resource that the one who was the victim of cosmic homicide has prayed not only for them but also for us. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Let me take the hit so that they can go free. What a great hope the Lord has given us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, um, these are hard words because things like forgiveness, things like non-defensiveness, things like receiving even constructive critique are so utterly painful for us because we are made in your image, which means we're made in the image of a perfect God and so anything that says we're not perfect, even though we come from the perfect Garden of Eden and we're destined toward the perfect new heaven and new earth, but here in this in-between time, Lord, anything that strikes at our imperfection just terrifies us, makes us feel unmoored. And, and part of that, Lord, is because we are the image of God and part of that is that we suffer to believe the gospel in ways that can free us. And so, Lord, help us to believe the gospel. Help us to become the kinds of people who catch things early, who make thousands and thousands of 
many decisions to release what could become outrage into your hands so that when the real time of testing comes, we can stand in those moments as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the body and the blood that gives us strength and that also reminds us that we are forgiven where we fail. We are kept where we fail. We are said to belong and to be adopted where we fail. You cannot and will not unadopt us, Lord. And so give us great strength now as we receive the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.